That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That was uh, Him for the Weekend by Coldplay featuring Beyonce. I feel like a DJ. Him for the Weekend by Coldplay featuring Beyonce. What on earth is it doing at church? You should have seen the eyes at the 8 o'clock service. We're doing this series called Anthems of the Age, where we take a popular song and um, from our culture and we put it in dialogue with the Christian faith. So every week for the next three weeks, we're going to be asking, what is the message of this song and why is it so popular? And then we put that in dialogue with the Christian faith. What does the Christian faith have to say about all this? So why this particular song? I think it ticks all of our boxes. Uh, it was actually written to be a club anthem. That was the goal. The last time I checked, it had 1.5 billion downloads on YouTube. 1.5 billion with a B for bonkers. <laughs> Nine zeros. That means if, um, if we took every man, woman, and child and infant in India where the film was, where the music video was shot, uh, and the same with uh, everyone in the UK, where Coldplay are from, and everyone in the U.S., where Beyonce is from. If we took every infant, man, woman, and child, and they downloaded the, vi the video once, we'd still have a couple hundred million left over for the rest of us. I think it's fair to say that Coldplay and Beyonce achieved what they set out to do. I think it's fair to call this an anthem of our age. Why is it so popular? What's the song about? Chris Martin, he's the lead singer there. He wrote the song. He tells us, he said in an interview, it's about the idea of having an angelic person in your life. And that's why they asked Beyonce to sing it. <laughs> so you have the lyrics printed out on your seat. They're right there. You can have a look. The opening line from the song is, Drink from me. You see it there? Drink from me, drink from me. The song is about having a thirst quenched by another person. It's about having a need met. It's about finding satisfaction in a sexual romantic relationship. In fact, when you read these lyrics and uh, you watch the video, you quickly discover that this is a need that is so deep and a satisfaction so powerful that it takes on religious transcendent, even mystical overtones. Having your sexual romantic needs satisfied by another person is a religious experience. That's the message of the song. Let me show you what I mean. So we've got our lyrics. When you look at those lyrics, you just can't miss it. You can't miss the religious overtones. What's the title of the song? Hymn for the Weekend. A hymn is a religious song. The first verse opens with the line, O angel, sent from up above. Another line says, put your wings on me. Another line talks about shooting across the sky. The, the video we've just watched has the band celebrating the Hindu festival of Holi, the festival of divine love. The message is clear. It couldn't be clearer. Romantic relationships are an act of worship. They're an act of worship. In other words, you, the satisfaction you get from 
a sexual romantic connection is a religious experience. The need that it meets is so deep that it's not just about what we want. It's about who we are. It defines us. This is what we were made for. This is where true soul satisfaction is to be found in a sexual romantic relationship. I think judging by the 1.5 billion downloads, this is a very popular message in our culture. In fact, if you were to go to any of the music, the popular music platforms, your, your music platform, if you go to any of the music platforms, you look at the top 10 songs on that platform, you're going to struggle to find a song that isn't singing this tune, the tune of satisfaction in sex. And so Him for the Weekend is a massively popular song, singing a massively popular message, containing a massively popular cultural conviction, cultural belief. People are committed to this as a fundamental truth in our culture. Our question, is it true? Is it actually true? Because contrary to our hyper- democratic, socially networked world, popularity doesn't always equal truth. Just because an idea is popular doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. That's a whole other topic for another sermon. For now, we just want to ask the question, the very simple question, is this true? Is our deepest need and our greatest satisfaction to be found in sexual romantic relationships, in finding the one, your destiny, the life partner, that soulmate. Is that at the heart of the human condition? Is that the highest human aspiration? Now just superficially, if we just look at the surface of things, there are a number of things that suggest that it isn't true. Or at least that it's only half the truth, a partial truth. So we could go to the divorce statistics and we could ask if sexual romantic relationships are where satisfaction is found, why are they not enough to sustain a marriage? I mean, most marriages begin in this kind of romantic chemistry, in, this, in the pixie dust of the honeymoon, if you like. That's where most marriage relationships begin. If that's where satisfaction is found, why don't they last? If relationships really could satisfy, surely one would be enough. Or we could look at um, the data on the relationships that do last and how the causes for success go well beyond that initial chemistry, well beyond sex and romance. We could do all that. We could do all that. But statistics can be boring, I don't need to tell you. And stories are much more interesting. So let me ask you about your story. Have your sexual romantic encounters produced the deep and lasting satisfaction of the kind advertised by him for the weekend? Have they transported you to nirvana? If they have... Are you still there? If not, why not? 
While we grapple all of that with all of that in our own lives, let's meet a woman who is highly, highly qualified to answer our questions. So we meet her in the other, on the other side of your printout. That's where we meet her. On the one side, you have Coldplay and him for the weekend telling us that deepest human satisfaction is to be found in sexual human relationships. We are asking, is that true? And we're asking it of a woman who you will encounter on the other side of this handout. As I said, she's very qualified to answer. What we're going to discover is that she was married five times and her last relationship was a case of fat and sit. We're going to explore all of these questions through her lived experience and through her encounter with Jesus Christ. So you can follow, as I said, on your handout. Please do. It will be helpful for us to go on this journey together. We're going to start in um, John chapter 4, verse 3. So that's the small superscript. It's three lines down. That's where we're going to pick it up. And you can just read along with me. Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So these few verses are just setting the scene for us. Basically, Jesus is traveling with his followers. Uh, We're going to read on, and we're going to discover that they go off into town to grab some food. He's exhausted. He sits down uh, to rest by this well. That's the basic outline. There's just a couple of details that I think we need to press into. We don't want to miss. First, in that day and age, there were some ultra-Orthodox Jews who would not even pass through Samaria. So just to give you an idea, Samaria is just a geographic region. Uh, In the south, you've got Judea. In the north, you've got Galilee. Jesus and his followers are traveling from the south to the north. Samaria is in the way. So your ultra-Orthodox Jews would go the long way around. They wouldn't even pass through Samaria because of a conflict between Jews and Samaritans that had been running for centuries. So Jews, when it came to ethnicity and religion, Jews and Samaritans were a bit like extended family. And as we know, I don't have to convince you, family feuds are often the worst kind. These two groups had so much in common, many of the same beliefs, much of the same heritage, But their differences, their differences made them bitter, bitter enemies. So much so that the Jews thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds, thought of them as religiously unclean. And, And those who didn't want to be defiled would take the long way around. Jesus cuts straight through. So I told you all of that to tell you this. Jesus just passes straight through. He cuts straight through. Make note of that. Secondly, Jesus sits down on the well in the midday sun. Now, the the opening to the well would have a low wall built around it. So just a low wall, a small structure built around the opening to the well. He sits down on that low wall in the midday sun. As the story unfolds, we discover that he has no water bag. Now, that's interesting in and of itself because travelers would carry a water bag. They would always carry a water bag. You didn't travel without one. It was a bit like an ancient version of the PCR test. You just didn't go anywhere without one. 
So we shove things up our nostrils, they grab the leather pouch. That's how it is. Jesus is sitting on top of the well in the heat of the day with nothing to draw water. It's a bit curious, isn't it? It's as if he is deliberately hoping to meet someone. We read on, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This woman approaches the well. The climate in the Middle East meant that women didn't do that. They didn't go to the well in the heat of the midday sun. The custom in the Middle East meant that women would never go alone. That was just entirely improper. They would always go together in a group. For this woman to come at midday all alone means one of two things, one of three things. Either she's a social outcast or she's deliberately trying to meet someone at the well for all the wrong reasons or both. Whatever her reasons, whatever her motivations, she comes at midday, she comes all alone. Social etiquette at that time meant that Jesus, on seeing her, would have to withdraw at least 10 meters just to signal to her that she's safe and that his own motives are pure. He just ignores that taboo. He goes even further. He breaks another social rule. He actually strikes up a conversation with her. Now, most of us don't get just how outrageous his behavior is, even by the Today's standards in the Middle East. There's, um, there's one scholar who lived his whole life in the Middle East. He describes how in all of his time there, in over, over 40 years, more than four decades, he never once spoke to a woman in private without another witness present. Not once. Just unthinkable. Jesus discards that rule. And then he breaks yet another Remember, we were just saying, Jews were not supposed to have anything to do with Samaritans. Nothing. This feud had been going on for more than 500 years. So just to give you some sense, in the year 300 BC, the Samaritans hosted the Greeks while they ruled over the Jews. Something like, oh, you want to oppress the Jews? Well, why don't you do it from our house? Then in 128 BC, the Jews hit back by destroying the most sacred site in Samaritan culture, their temple. They raised it to the ground. And then, of course, it's the turn of the Samaritans to get even. So just a few years before Jesus is born, at the time of the Passover festival, which is a really high point in the Jewish calendar, the Samaritans scattered dead bones all over the temple complex in Jerusalem making it impossible for the Jews to keep the feast. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jesus doesn't care. He relates to this Samaritan woman as one human being to another. Will you give me a drink? And that's so basic in its humanity, isn't it? We, don't, we can't last very long without a drink. Will you give me a drink? He doesn't just reach out to her. 
He doesn't just cross those social barriers. He actually places her in the position of power. He's the one in need. She's the one who can satisfy that need. Will you give me a drink? Of course, we can hardly blame her. She responds with skepticism. He has a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman under the pretext of water when no traveler would have traveled without the bag. So in our context, that's a bit like a guy coming up to a lady at a remote filling station and saying, listen, my car's just around the back and behind the bushes. Won't you just come and help me change a flat? Of course she's skeptical. What is it you really want? Which need exactly are you aiming to satisfy? We can forgive her. She's been down this road before. But Jesus challenges her skepticism. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well, drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? She withholds the drinking water, and so he offers her living water. What's easy to miss for us in this conversation is that living water has a double meaning. So hundreds of years before, the, the Hebrew prophet, the Jewish prophet Jeremiah, used the metaphor living water to describe God himself. But living water could also just in everyday usage, living water could also just mean running water, as in water from the spring, not water from the well. So do you see the misalignment here? They're completely talking past each other. Jesus is offering access to God himself. He couldn't be offering anything higher. She thinks he's claiming insider knowledge on where to tap into the spring. And so she responds with more skepticism and more aggression. She's getting irritated with this man. Jacob, the great patriarch, gave us this well. Us, Samaritans, not you Jews. And you claiming to have something better. You, a Jewish nomad who doesn't even have a water bag, you are going to give me something better than Jacob's well. At this point, I think our blood would be rising. Jesus could easily fight fire with fire. He could easily trade ethnic slurs, put this woman in her place. He doesn't do that. He ignores her skepticism. The more she stresses what divides them, the more he stresses what unites them. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone, everyone, see the unity there, everyone who drinks from this, drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, again, stressing the unity, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus says to her, Everyone, Jews, Samaritans, it doesn't matter. Everyone is looking for satisfaction. Everyone. 
but you are not going to find it at this well. Only the water I can give you will truly satisfy. And satisfy in the truest sense of never thirsting again. Of having your deepest needs and desires met forever. Once and for all. He is talking about soul satisfaction. She's still stuck on her manzi. And the daily grind of having to go to that well and draw it. And so the crisis reaches a climax. Jesus is going to show her what living water means. He's going to help her out of her confusion. Look at how he does it. Just notice how he does it. Verse 16, he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus, the one who is offering her soul satisfaction, looks deep into her soul, goes deep into her soul, and shows her where she's been trying to get that satisfaction. And in the process, he exposes the darkest driest, most barren corners of her life. And of course, she's ashamed. She's ashamed. What does she do with that shame? She does what we all do. She lies, and she deflects, and she projects. She lies. I have no husband. Then she deflects, from the discomfort, the intense, awkward discomfort of this personal vulnerability to the safety of religious debate. She'd rather go to religion with all the prickliness that that had for Jews and Samaritans. She'd rather go there than talk about her own life. She sidesteps her own shame just by shifting the topic to religion of all things. She deflects. And then she projects. The real problem is with you Jews. And your worship practices. She does what we all do with our shame. She scrambles to hide it. She scratches in the dirt to try and bury it. That, that much is not unusual. What is interesting is that in all her evasion, she has unwittingly stumbled on the crux of the matter, the heart of the matter. Because worship is all about where we find our satisfaction. That's what worship is. That's why Coldplay writes about sex and romance as an act of worship. They're saying that's where you should find your satisfaction. She has unwittingly stumbled onto the right path, and so Jesus takes her by the hand, and he walks down that path with her. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming... When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. 
God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is saying to her, the hour of true worship, of true satisfaction is coming. True satisfaction, true worship is to be found in knowing God as Father. Knowing him as he is, on his terms, not on ours. Her response is probably the first transparent and true thing she said in the whole conversation, even if she doesn't fully understand what she's saying. She says, the Christ will tell us. God's king, when he comes, he'll settle all of this for us. The Christ will help us know God as we should. Now this is something Jews and Samaritans had in common. Both Jews and Samaritans were waiting for God's king to come to settle all disputes and then to rule the world. And so Jesus doesn't deny anything she said. His reply is simple, but it's enormously profound. I am he. I'm the king you've been waiting for. I am God's king. Now, before, before we try and make sense of all of this, there's just one more thing I, w- I want you to see. One thing we must see. Just look at what happens next. Look at what happens to this woman. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So Jesus' followers, you remember, they went into town to grab food. They've now come back. They see this woman. They respond the way Jesus was supposed to respond, with a kind of awkward, disapproving silence. They disapprove. They don't have the courage of their convictions to say anything, but they certainly disapprove of her presence. But this time... She responds with none of the defensive, combative hostility that we've seen so far. She doesn't even seem to care. She doesn't even react. In her hurry to get back to town, she leaves her water jar behind. The reason she came to the well in the first place, she just leaves it behind. It's as if she's found satisfaction somewhere else. And then she goes and she deliberately seeks out the very people she was trying to avoid by going at noon. She goes and intentionally tries to find them. She goes to her neighbors. She speaks to them openly about the very things that she was trying to hide from them. The very things she was ashamed of. In verse 29, she talks about everything I ever did. He told me everything I ever did. That's not her bio, people. That's five husbands and fattensit. He told me everything I ever did. And the reason she does all this is that she wants the townspeople, remember the people who had been shaming her and shunning her and clicking their tongues and shaking their heads and warning their children, she wants them to meet this man. 
this man who seems to be giving out living water, this man who seems to be giving out a relationship with God, could this be the Messiah? She's a different person. She's an utterly different person. Where she was self-isolating and evasive and hostile because of her shame, now she's open. She's secure. She's even concerned for others, even her enemies. How did that happen? How did this transformation happen? Because it's radical. How did it happen? In the words of Coldplay, Jesus said to her, Drink from me. When she was so thirsty, Drink from me. You see, she had been drinking from the well of sexual relationships over and over and over again. She thought she could find soul satisfaction in a human relationship. But that turned out to be a salt water well. And the more she drank, the thirstier she became. And then again, in the words of Coldplay, Jesus seems to have come from up above. When she was down, when she was hurt, he came to lift her up. He offered her living water. He offered her the only thing that truly satisfies, something so powerful that it would meet her deepest needs and desires. It would overcome her alienation with God and with others. He offered her himself. He offered her unconditional love with no strings attached. The requirement wasn't sex. The requirement wasn't as long as you interest me, as long as you fulfill me, as long as you give me that buzz, as long as you take care of my domestic situation, as long as you help me be the best possible version of myself. There were no requirements, none. You can read through it again for yourself. Look for the T's and C's. You're not going to find any. Through Jesus... This broken, thirsty woman would know God not as judge to condemn her sin, but as father to embrace her in all of her weakness. At the bottom, underneath it all, she just needed to be loved. She just needed to know that she was worth something. But she was just like us. She looked for that love in all the wrong places. And so we can say that Coldplay are right when they say, when they sing, that we have a deep, deep need. They are right when they sing that it can only be satisfied in a love relationship. They are profoundly wrong when they suggest that we can find that kind of satisfaction in a sexual romantic relationship with another human being. They just haven't gone far enough. They haven't pressed deep enough into the truth. Because the human soul is deep. It takes so much more than that to fill it. So how, did, how does Jesus do it? How does he satisfy our souls? How does he prove his unconditional love? 
Because God's love isn't like our love. Our love is this game we play where we affirm each other. So I affirm you no matter what you do, no matter what you are and what you do, as long as you do the same for me. Right? That's how it works. So you do you and I'll do me and we'll both pretend everything is fine. And we call that love. God doesn't do that. Remember, Jesus went into the darkest corners of her life. He went into the darkest corners of her soul. His love didn't pretend. His love didn't look the other way. His love helped her to face up to the truth and to show her a way out. A way that he had made. A way that only he could offer. And what is that way? Well, he hints an answer in his conversation with her when he speaks about the hour that is coming. And as, if we were to read on in the story, we would, we would find out that that hour is the moment when he goes to Jerusalem to offer himself as a temple sacrifice for her sin, for her adultery, for her shame, for her alienation with God. His sacrifice of himself would cleanse her and bring her back to God, not as a sinner to be punished, but as a daughter to be welcomed home. That's the depth of love it would take to satisfy her soul, to quench her thirst, to reassure her that even if no one else in the world loves her, God does. And because it's his love, his unique love, his love is enough. It's abundant. It satisfies. Of course, in the story, she doesn't yet have a full grasp on all of this. She doesn't yet know God's love in all of its fullness. She's only tasted it. She's just tasted it in this brief encounter with Jesus. In his willingness to humble himself. In his willingness to put aside every social custom that is there to remind her of her inferiority. To deal with her gently and warmly in her humanity. And to do all of that while knowing the very worst parts about her. Her life, her soul, and her history. She only wet her lips on the love of God. But it was enough to quench her thirst and to set her free. Remember how she changed. She was a new person. After one conversation with Jesus, she was a new person. And he didn't just give her the one conversation. He would go on to give his whole life. He would die in her place. That's how much he would love her. That's the love of God. And it's only the love of God that will truly satisfy our souls and quench our thirst. To love this woman at the well, Jesus had to get deeply personal. And so we need to get deeply personal. We need to ask the question we asked earlier. Have your relationships brought the kind of soul satisfaction that Coldplay and just about everybody else who's on the charts promise that it will? Have your relationships brought that kind of soul satisfaction? That's on the label. That's on the advertising. 
judging by my own experience and by the experience of the people in this church, the people I know, I don't think that's very likely. It's highly unlikely. Even for those in stable, long-term, loving, monogamous relationships, it's not very likely. If this person is there to satisfy the deepest desires of your soul, they just can't do it. They will be crushed under the weight of expectation. You are asking them to do what only God can do. They cannot do it. It is much more probable that you are like the woman in our story. The more you drink from the well of relationships with other people, hoping that they are going to satisfy the deepest desires of your heart, the thirstier you get. It is a salt water well. But praise God, there is another well. There is a bottomless well of living water. There is a relationship that will satisfy you. Find it in Jesus. And he's offering it to you. He wants to give it to you. He's offering it to you this morning, to you. He's offering it to you. He says to you what he said to the woman at the well. If you ask me, I will give you living water. I will give you myself. If you are thirsty, if you are tired of hiding, if you are tired of your shame and you want to be right with God and you want to be right with others, you just need to ask Jesus. And he will give you what you so desperately need. How do you ask him? You ask him by praying. Prayer is just speaking to God. Prayer is just having a conversation with Jesus like the woman at the well. That's all prayer is. If you want to ask Jesus for the living water that only he can give, then why don't you pray this prayer with me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it out so you know what you're praying. I don't want you to pray something you're not comfortable praying. So just listen to it. And if these words are for you, I will pray it again. And you can pray it quietly in your own heart. So here's the prayer. This is what we will pray in just a moment. Dear Jesus, I don't know much, but I know I'm thirsty. I know I need the love of God in my life. I know I've messed up and I need to be made right with God. Please will you give me what I need. Please will you help me to know my Father in heaven and to be satisfied in him. So, if this prayer is for you, won't you bow your head and you can pray it after me in the quiet of your own heart. Dear Jesus, I know I don't know much, but I do know that I'm thirsty. I know that I need the love of God in my life. I know I've messed up and I need to be made right with God. Please, will you give me what I need? Please, will you help me to know my Father in heaven and to be satisfied in him? Amen.